Welcome to Conversations with Future Generation. I am Louise Walsh, CEO of the Impact Investing Companies, Future Generation Australia and Future Generation Global. In this series, we explore the worlds of investing, philanthropy, mental health and supporting children and youth at risk with amazing Australians who are leading the way. The biggest issue facing Australia and the world today is coronavirus. It's an incredibly difficult time for everyone and the news is changing every day. Here to talk with me for episode one of this podcast series about COVID and the impact on Australia, including how we live and work, is Jonathan or John Nicholas, one of the leading experts in mental health in Australia. John is the founder and managing director of the Wellbeing Outfit an advisory firm that improves organisational performance by improving the wellbeing and resilience of staff. Jono was previously the CEO of Reach Out Australia, Australia's leading digital mental health service for young people and their parents. Reach Out is one of our future generation global recipient charities, so we know him well. He's also a director of Future Generation Global. Jono has a Bachelor of Arts Honours majoring in Psychology and a Masters in Public Health. So he's more than uh, qualified to talk with us today. So Jono, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Louise. So Jono, I think the question on everyone's lips about COVID, of course, is how long long is this going to last? I mean, we don't, you know, it's difficult to, to get a grasp on the time horizon um, for this crisis and um, you know, we think the government, uh, you know, it's changing every day. The messaging's changing. It seems like we're talking about a, a six-month hibernation strategy at the moment. But, um, you know, what, what, what's your view on, on all of this? I mean, is it possibly one October before we're going to get back to normal? What do you think? Yeah, Louise, this is, this is the burning question. And, and the first part of this is COVID-19 is a health issue with economic consequences, not an economic issue. And therefore, we have to come back to the science. The science tells us that coronaviruses as a group are incredibly hard to to develop a vaccine for. Um, If you just look at something as relatively simple as the flu, how uh, difficult it has been to get any sorts of vaccines up and, and, and effective for them. So my personal view is that we will be living with COVID-19 or in a COVID-19 world uh, for at least the next 18 months. And the question for investors, the question for government, the question for businesses is not what will we do post-COVID-19, but how do we operate an effective community and a safe community inside a COVID-19 environment? So I think what we'll see from government is rather than wait for a vaccine, they will start working out how can we implement and manage measures so that we can turn on parts of the economy while COVID-19 is still very present. Uh, and that will happen probably uh, to some extent within uh, a six-month time frame. And do you think do you think that there will be a, a vaccine? I mean, we're, we're hearing sort of, you know, 12 to 18 months' time. Um, you know, we're, we're reading a lot about a vaccine. I mean, do you think, do you think there will be one? Uh, I'm very pessimistic that we will get one. Um, if you look at other areas like HIV/AIDS, uh, 
we've got effective treatments to manage it as a chronic issue, but we don't have a vaccine. If you look at the flu, we don't really have an effective vaccine. Um, so I, I don't think we will. I think you'll find effective treatments over time so that we can manage it as a health issue. Uh, but um, I think that 18-month time horizon is one where scientists are saying we don't know and it will be at least 18 months rather than we will definitely have one in 18 months. So I would say we should be adjusting our businesses, adjusting our lifestyle, adjusting our social expectations to operate within this environment rather than assume that it'll be quick and we go back to a, a pre-COVID-19 world. Uh, that means things like social distancing will be with us for some time. It means that we will fundamentally need to rethink how we school our kids. Uh, it will radically change how we think about um, our society and community, uh, and that will happen uh, at, at, for social change terms at lightning speed. And look, I know, you know, in your situation, um, I think you're living in the inner west of Sydney. I think you've got three uh, primary school boys at home. You're working from home. I know your your wife has a quite a high-powered job um, with the New South Wales government. Um, you know, let's talk about the, the issue of schooling and, you know, that subject of um, whether we're best with schools open or shut and, and you know how, how are you dealing with that situation itself and and what are your thoughts on on whether schools should be open or shut yeah this is this is probably one of the most difficult social situations so um you know i have three boys under the age of 11 my youngest is six so just starting school uh, my middle boy's eight and my oldest boy is in, in late primary uh, and it's incredibly difficult in part because it happened so suddenly uh, and in part because schools are ill-prepared. They've had, you know, the better part of a hundred years to perfect the idea of face-to-face -face schooling. And each of those teachers have been trained to operate in a school environment, not trained to deliver education remotely. So we're seeing a massive upheaval. Parents are at the front line of that. And also we're seeing a really big generational uh, impact. So certainly my experience and the experience of many parents that if you have primary school age kids, then it's much tougher. It also means actually grandparents play a huge role in supporting families of primary school age kids. And, and for many families, uh, they can't uh, access the physical support of, of grandparents and are now uh, trying to do that digitally. So there's a really tough situation for primary school families of primary school age kids. Those with kids in high school and university have a different set of issues. Um, but probably not the same pressures that exist um, in that in that age cohort. Right. Now, look, I'd, lo I'd love to talk about your, you know, your business. I mean, um, can you tell us how you are helping businesses during this time, and and the main questions that that people are asking? I mean, what's the request for help that you're you're getting? Because I'm I'm imagining that your business is pretty pretty busy at the moment um, dealing with all sorts of issues in uh, for the impact of COVID. Yeah, so part of my uh, my business role is we're an advisor and I'm an advisor to EY. I'm, I'm an executive consultant to EY Oceana and working with the leadership there on how to understand this as a health issue. So what is our public health data telling us? What will be the likely government responses out of that? Because the impact on businesses are not business decisions. They're actually government decisions to shut down parts of our economy. And so we need to understand what government would do uh, as, as businesses 
and then what is the psychological impact of this on our staff and customers. So certainly for me, having a background in psychology uh, and public health means that I'm, I'm supporting a lot of organisations um, around how do you understand this issue and then how do you start planning out your business response in relation to health data. Uh, and I think that's the, the most important thing that I would say to people out there who are thinking in investment terms or people who think about their business. There is a reason why the key advisor to the Prime Minister right now is not the Treasurer but the Chief Medical Officer. This is a medical health issue and is being driven by health decisions, not by economic decisions. And then the economic decisions are trying to be managed around it. So any business that's looking to, to understand and, and make really good decisions through this period really needs to tap into the advice of someone who can understand the health trajectory of COVID-19, not just the business trajectory of, of COVID-19. And I'm guessing, you know, it's pretty obviously fascinating for you because of the clinical psychologist being in there with the leadership team advising them. I'll bet, I'll bet they've never, I'm guessing they've never used anyone with your type of background and skill set before to manage a crisis. I mean, that would be pretty, a bit of a first, I would imagine. Yeah, that's it. That's right. So my, you know, my, my background is in crisis and uh, psychology, but also operating a, a service like Reach Out, which has operated digitally, was the first digital mental health service in the world, and therefore can understand some of the public health consequences and how people behave in distributed locations. There's an interesting skill set that I can bring to bear. The major difference for, for organisations like EY and some of my other clients um, is what is the psychology that sits behind this? We know that actually the most effective intervention for around COVID-19 are the change in behaviour of individuals. Do we agree to stay at home? Do we support the government in having our kids at home? Do we agree to not go into workplaces? These are all decisions individual citizens make and therefore the reason they make those decisions is actually based around the psychology of this as well as, um, as, as, well as anything else. So this is probably the, the major shift, again, that, that smart businesses are making, which is we need people who can tell us how people will respond to these changes so that we can therefore adjust our business practices accordingly and try and get ahead of the curve. This is an issue that is moving at incredible speed. Mid-February, late, um, late January, we were, we were really worried about bushfires. Um, by the middle of March, we pretty much shut down some of our economy by April, we'd, we'd brought all the kids home from school pretty much. So that time horizon for such radical social change is unheard of, uh, and their businesses need to start understanding that and try and get ahead of that curve pretty quickly. And look, it was interesting when we were preparing for this, and you mentioned to me um, a particular program that EY had developed um, as a result of the impact of COVID and it, and it was is related to school holidays. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I thought that was that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think EY have, have responded to this really, really uh, quickly and clearly. They're obviously a very big organisation with some, some resources, but also the leadership have, have really tried to understand how do they best support their people through this. They recognise really early on that the impact is going to be on on their workforce with primary school age children and very quickly set up a school holiday program that uh, staff can access uh, during the next kind of fortnight. 
One, I think, just genuinely to support their people so that kids have something to do during the school holiday program, but also as a, as a real recognition that their staff are under pressure, that they themselves are trying to, trying to do their job under really trying circumstances. And that as an organisation, if you could recognise that and try and provide innovative resources to support that workforce, you're going to, to really benefit. So for me, this is one of the great opportunities for lateral thinking. Things that we otherwise wouldn't have thought were part of the business remit are going to be the ones that probably stand out businesses do during the time. And John, I like can you unpack that a bit? So, what what sort of things? What is that going to involve? That that virtual. I mean, obviously, it's the virtuals who will hold those programs. So, what are the, what yeah, sort of things so are the kids going to do? So, it's like your know, virtual programming, like you know, kids kids yoga, for example, uh, virtual making of digital resources. As you said, it's really about having a program that will cover the the two weeks um, with experts and. and and within the safe infrastructure of EY in terms of digital resources. So again, I think it's, it's really about setting up a, a, a school holiday program that has a range of resources so that different kids can tap in at different times. And if you think about it, one of the, one of the radical insights here from EY is that businesses in this environment are actually communities that all our other touch points community, whether it be sporting clubs, school holiday programs, government and community parks, beaches have been denied us and the, the most frequent community that we'll interact with is actually the workplace and therefore really smart leaders are saying, how would we respond to this as a community, not just necessarily as a business? What a community would do is provide school holiday programs. What a community would do is provide access to exercise programs. What a community would do is, is provide access to, to virtual doctors and other and so I think, again, one of the, the smart things that EY have done as an example, I'm sure there's many other businesses, is think as community leaders and think of their community as their staff base and start providing a broader range of resources to support them through what can otherwise be a really difficult time. Yeah, looks fantastic. I mean, it was interesting uh, last night. As you know, I work out of the office of Wilson Asset Management, the founder, Jeff Wilson. So... We were all on uh, Zoom last night and we had a trivia night. Um, it was a dress up and uh, we had prizes. So we we're in teams and we were, you know, using WhatsApp for the answers. And, uh, you know, it, it worked really well. So, you know, like it, it's, it is about thinking, you know, laterally in this time and, uh, you know, hats off to businesses that are, that are doing that well and doing that creatively, of course, as well. I think the other thing I wanted to, to talk about with you is with, it, with Future Generation, of course, we're very focused on supporting um, youth mental health causes. I mean, we very much uh, view mental health as the health issue of our time. Well, that's always been my tagline over the last few years. Now, of course, we've got a pandemic, <laughs> so that may well be the health issue of our time. But of course, with self-isolation and quarantine measures in place and, of course, the, the economic impacts. I mean, the rise in mental health issues is, is going to be alarming and I think is already alarming. Um, you know, have you, have you got any, any particular strategies and tips and, on how to cope with this time? Because it's going to touch everyone. I mean, it's obviously going to touch the people that are, that are losing their jobs or, or are being stood down, but... It is the isolation, the hibernation factor as well. 
Yeah, so the first part of the, the mental health challenges of COVID-19 is actually fear. Um, so when we are afraid, when the world changes too quickly, uh, our reptilian brain takes over, which is it's the back bit of our brain, and, and we respond in what we call fight or flight. We get very angry or, or we get very afraid. And what most people are experiencing now due to these sudden and, and widespread changes is really fear and stress as a result of that. Now, what we have to remember is, in the mental health terms, it's a mental health issue, but that doesn't make you mentally ill in a, in a, in a clinical sense. So people are feeling anxious, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have an anxiety disorder. Um, but it is about recognising that that is a natural response to an extreme situation. So the first thing I would say to, to everybody, which is if you are stressed and anxious right now, that is completely a normal, and it's a completely normal response to an abnormal situation. If it continues and if it becomes really severe and if it really impacts your life, then it may kick over into um, into a disorder or something where you need to go for. In terms of tips, what I would say to people is you need to provide or find routine in a world that has the absence of routine. So if you look at it for our family, for example, we would normally get up on a school day at about 6.30, 7 o'clock. We would normally leave the house at 8 o'clock to get the kids to school and get to work. And by that stage, we'd have breakfast and done the chores. And so what we're doing is replicating that in a COVID-19 environment. We still get up at 7 o'clock. We still have breakfast. We still leave the house at 8 o'clock um, being dressed and having changed our clothes. The difference is that we go to the park and go for a walk. So we get our morning exercise and then we come back and we do a meditation as a family and then we try and start our, our day at 9am. So most of that is about trying to create structure and predictability and routine in the world that has the absence of it. Um, and so that would be my first tip. If you can find structure and routine, you'll find your sense of anxiety to drop. The second thing I would say is people need to reduce the reading and the breadth of reading they do around COVID-19. Many people are feeling overwhelmed by information but are compulsively accessing that information. So it you know, might really be about narrowing down the sources that you, you have um, of information. Get back into reading things like books that have nothing to do with COVID-19 and kind of get out of newspapers. And then the final thing would be really monitor your sleep. What we know is that when people are stressed, they have very disrupted sleep. Probably many people are finding they're having very vivid dreams at the moment because they're not getting into a deep sleep cycle because their brains move too fast. Um, and we want to make sure that we're helping everybody sleep um, and sleep adequately. And those are the sorts of things that will give us some really great structures to maintain our well-being over the long term, both for us as individuals but also for those families and young kids. We need to provide that routine for them as well. They will feel much safer if they have some routine, even if it's routine that they remember. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, they're great tips. I mean, just personally, I, I have been struggling with the overload of the information. I mean, it is quite extraordinary, you know, what's out there. And I am a, I am a gatherer of it. You know, I love to be on top of everything. I like to have the, the latest you know, the latest data and everything else. And I, and I do, you know, some sometimes I go to bed and I think, wow, you know, I, it's still too much. And interestingly enough, my husband uh, quite likes CNN. 
And um, I don't know if you've, you've listened to any of that, but, but of course, you know, we switch it on about 8 o'clock at night, um, which, of course, is the start of the day in the U.S., and, of course, you know, with everything going over there, it's completely in overload. I mean, some nights I just have to say to my husband, look, I've, I've had enough now. You know, and he's, it's interesting how each individual copes, copes much better than the other. But I think the, the reading tip is fabulous. I mean, I happen to be a big reader and, and I tend to read a lot of fiction. Um, and it's perfect at the moment because there's no... That, that is the saviour. I mean, I've been... Uh, I've been stocking up at the bookstore. I did before I thought that big shutdown might have happened uh, whenever that was a, a couple of couple of weeks ago. So, uh, so thank you. The other thing I wanted to talk about is um, just a practical thing. I mean, you know, Australians are very big travellers. I mean, we're renowned for it. We love it. It's, you know, we love travelling within this fantastic country, but of course, we love international travel as well. I mean, it's something personally I look forward to every year or so. You know, there's a trip planned. We tend to agree on the trip, you know, in January each year and, and off we go later in the year. And, of course, you know, that's all gone to custard um, for this year. I mean, if you've got any thoughts on, you know, international travel, I mean, when do you seriously think it will resume, resume whether it's, a, you know, personal holiday travel or for business. Just curious on your thoughts on that. And also, if we talk a little bit about trading blocks and how that might work um, with different countries as well. Sure. So I think the first part I would say for those who love travelling is learn to fall in love with Australia because the most likely holiday you'll have in 2020 and 2021 will be in Australia, not internationally. What we're seeing in countries that have dealt with COVID-19 very well, which is Australia, uh, New Zealand, uh, to some extent Singapore, Japan, Korea, uh, in Europe, Austria, looks like they've dealt with it far better than elsewhere, is they've managed community transmission really well. What that means is not uh, people who've got COVID-19 and brought it back, but community transmission where we're not sure how we've got COVID-19. What has become very clear in the UK and the US is that COVID-19 has been transmitting in the population for some time. They haven't traced it really well, and we're now seeing in places like New York a massive explosion of it um, as the illness really starts peaking in very kind of tight populations. You saw the same thing in Wuhan, for example. So what does that mean? It means that I think Australia and New Zealand uh, will come out of this crisis very, very strongly. We will have very tight tracing systems coming out of this. That the first part of travel that will be open to people is, is interstate travel in Australia, possibly to New Zealand, uh, depending on, on things. But when you travel internationally, I think it will be to a very restricted number of countries and that people will have to get very comfortable with the idea that they'll be quarantined on the way back um, for at least 7 to 14 days. Now, that depends on the effectiveness by which we can actually detect, have an early detection for COVID-19 as opposed to a vaccine. Um, I would assume at this stage that we don't have open travel with Europe, with uh, certainly parts of Asia and certainly the US for some time to come because I don't think we can rely on the fact that they have community transmission control. So that's a bit of a pessimistic assessment. Um, it could it could change based on medical advice, based on, on different detection systems. 
months later of the year, but I would assume that we're, we're travelling domestically. In terms of trading blocks, again, what, what you're seeing is a number of countries and the ones that I mentioned have actually got this thing far more tightly under control. And what will happen is that they'll be able to turn on their domestic economies um, far quicker. As a result, I think there will also be greater confidence between those governments to start the, the economic movement of, of certain people between those countries. I would not be surprised if we see the emergence of a COVID, post-COVID-19 trading block of countries who've dealt with this really well, where you would find, for example, a high degree of cooperation between Australia, Japan, Korea, certainly New Zealand, um, on what we can do to kickstart our economies within safe health bounds. I think the interesting part of this is it looks like Indonesia will have its explosion of infections later in the year, and so therefore we'll have a different timeline. Uh, and certainly looks like the US will be in very, very serious straits for some months to come and therefore may not be an effective trading partner for Australia until 2021 um, and, and possibly beyond, uh, depending on what happens. We have to remember America or the US does not have a functioning public health, health system um, and therefore we could find massive outbreaks right across the country as they try and get control of this, um, mm. this issue. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, it sounds like we're going to be... Uh having to do brand new trade agreements. I mean, it's, it's you know, the ramifications are quite extraordinary as, as I'm thinking. I mean, even, you know, you talked about, um, you know, I mean, hotels could end up, of course, becoming permanent quarantine stations by the sound of the thoughts you're talking along. Yeah? Absolutely. So people go overseas. The, the government allows some limited movement of overseas. You would have to commit to some sort of track and tracing. And whether we use hotels for that, uh, or whether we isolate people in their homes, uh, I think would be an open question. What we're seeing is that when they ask people to self-isolate in homes, very well, not enough people complied to prevent community infections, and that's why they moved to hotels. So again, if you see this being a more sophisticated response, I know there's been some criticism of hotels, but to be fair, they had to adjust their business model pretty quickly. That we could find that. Yeah, people are able to go overseas, but they spend an additional amount of time in some level of isolation when they return. And that will limit a whole bunch of business movements. So you know, business travellers who might have travelled once a month to, to offices, that would just be impossible. Um, and these the people, I think, will plan out their holidays very, very differently uh, than they otherwise would. What does that mean? It means, I think, um, we could find a, a real boon in, in domestic tourism, for example. So there, in all of this, if we think about it economically, there will be some macro impacts, but organisations and businesses that adjust and adjust dynamically could be seen that they're real winners out of this. Uh, we're already seeing, for example, that hotels have been closed down and turned their kitchens into delivery stations. Uh, and they may not have a functioning business the way they thought of it, but they certainly are able to, to last for some time by changing their business model. Um, and mm. the same could happen in tourism and elsewhere. Um, mm. I think the big part that Australians are going to have to get comfortable with is the idea of personal surveillance, that, uh, we, that the government will need to know where you've been, how many people you've interacted with, and when you got sick, so that they can do effective and quick tracing to keep control of the 
infections. That is the only way the government will have any confidence of opening up the economy in, in large scale. Well, personally, I, I feel fine about that. I mean, you know, I, I'm happy for the sake of, you know, lives to be saved. You know, if I, if I have to be tracked and my movement has to be tracked, I mean, I know, you know, people, people get concerned about, um, you know, privacy issues, but, you know, if it means lives are being saved, you know, I've got an 86-year-old mother who's not well at the moment and just had four weeks in hospital, so she's a, a very high risk. But, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about her life, you know, and if, if if I have to be tracked and others need to be, I think I think you know we've we've all got to make a sacrifice. And in the end, it's not it's not that bad. And if we have to travel, you know, domestically rather than internationally for personal reasons, that's not the end of the world. I mean, that that could be a that could be a real plus as well. Absolutely, I think the the one thing that we'll need to again monitor in this in this new world is things like police powers. So I agree with you. I think as citizens we'll have to operate within a COVID-19 environment for, for a long time and therefore our expectations around civil liberties and others will have to be weighed up against the idea that we can no longer leave our house. So that, that will be a really interesting change. At the same time, we'll have to give a lot of powers to the state and how police respond to that, uh, how the government responds to that, at what point do those powers get taken away will be really interesting and challenging ethical and legal responsibilities. So if we give our, pay, our, our state the power to surveil us, uh, then there also needs to be very strong controls on how that information is used so that it's used for the right purposes. But that, you know, these are some of the deep ethical questions that will start to emerge in the next you know, three to six months, particularly as we start to turn on parts of the economy. That will be the real trick. We won't have confidence to turn on parts of the economy like um, like pubs and hotels and restaurants, um, until we are confident that we can quickly control community outbreaks. And that that is a whole new system of management that we haven't really thought of up until maybe February this year. Fascinating. And look, one last um, topic to chat on. I mean, you know, I think Sydney to Melbourne is the fourth busiest air route in the world. I mean, I, I always find that staggering when I when I hear that that particular stat, but. You know, I'm, I'm finding I can connect quite well over video and tele, teleconferencing and and get things done relatively easily in a, in a work environment. I've been working remotely uh, from home down on the south coast for just over four weeks now. I mean, the interesting thing is, do I need to go into the office with the transit time and get on a plane once a month to, to do meetings in person in Melbourne? I mean... You know, what, what are your views on the new norm? Um, because obviously things things are going to change. You know, we talked about international trade and travel, the whole topic about remote working and learning. You know, that, that's the other fascinating uh, change that, that could well happen with this. And the longer we're, we're in hibernation and the more likely it is that there will be more permanent change, I think. Absolutely. And this will change our investment trend. So... The first part of it, Louise, is I think we will see a, a, a quite a significant and radical change in how people view business travel and the reasons for business travel and the frequency of business travel. The second part is you know, I think Australians would actually think very, very differently about NBN and why we would have a gold-plated NBN with access direct to the home rather than access or, or to the node, for example. That would probably look like a pretty good investment now 
given we've got lots of people using uh, lots of bandwidth at home uh, in this COVID-19 environment. You'll see, I think, businesses really, really quickly remove uh, open workspaces um, in this environment. Certainly, they will want to know where people have a permanent desk, but I think the trade-off for that in terms of how often people go into the office will be um, how easily they are able to use their home work environment. Now, this will change a lot of the work health and safety obligations that businesses have to home. So if, if there's a reasonable expectation, for example, that employees are spending 30, 40, 50% of their time at home, working from home, then the occupational health and safety responsibilities of businesses to equip the home environment might look very different. So again, as we start thinking about the implementation of these issues, we are going to have to radically rethink where work and home start stops and what are the obligations of the workplace. In another level, it means that some of we were building a whole bunch of, of infrastructure and roads on the basis that people are driving a lot. That may change. Uh, we may find that our roads are far wider um, and that our capacity in public transport, actually, we may be able to meet it far better than we thought we were doing. So there are some really interesting investment questions, I think, that will flow off this, particularly given uh, governments, they certainly won't be broke, but will have spent an enormous amount of money to, to maintain the economy during this COVID-19 crisis and they may need to radically rethink the sorts of investments that they're making post-COVID-19 based on the behaviour of people. Uh, and the same thing I think you'll find a lot of retail businesses won't return to bricks and mortar in the same way and they will have a much more effective blend of bricks and mortar and digital business offerings. At the same time, I think there will absolutely be a boon in sort of digital infrastructure that we need to support remote working organisations like Telstra and elsewhere. So they're becoming even more so vital community assets, you know, like energy. And we should really recognise telecommunications as a vital community asset, similar to at the end, the vital community asset if we're assuming people work from home for a extended period of time. Well, look, Jono, it's been absolutely fascinating and I think we could probably talk for hours on this because, let's face it, it is such a unique point in our history. My 86-year-old mother was talking to me the other day and said, Louise, you know, I've lived through a world war. You know, I've lived through rations. You know, I've definitely lived through hardship. She said, it's interesting with your generation and millennials and, you know, kids today, I mean, you've never seen any hardship. I mean, life has been incredibly, uh, you've been incredibly blessed. You know, things have, have motored along and, you know, for the first time in your life, you've had some disruption and hardship. And, uh, you know, she said it's interesting just to see how we're all going to cope because it, in some ways she's she's fairly relaxed and resilient, you know, even though she's, she's quite elderly and all of this, but quite philosophical uh, about it as well. And I've even got her... You know, using the technology now, and we had our first telehealth consultation the other day. So, you know, it's um, it, it, I'm quite inspired. You know, listening to her in, in a time like this as well. So, uh, but it's uh, you know, for me, it's been fascinating. You know, it's it made me I don't know slow down a little bit, think a little bit more clearly. You know, just just a different perspective on things. And um, you know, there's got to be there's got to be some good that comes out of this stress and this hardship um, that we're going through. And I think your your insights have been um, just just 
fantastic. So I just want to thank you and thank you for your contribution to future generation, future generation global as well. And at some stage, we'd love to have you back talk with us again. Who knows? But it, it could be at a different, uh, a whole new different ball game later on. So thank you again. Thank you, Louise.